Stanley Park will be made car-free. We're doing it to reduce congestion in the park, to provide space on the roads within the park, and to relieve congestion on the adjacent seawalls to cyclists and to pedestrians. So people have room to walk in the middle of the street and aren't crowding onto sidewalks right next to each other. This is an idea that has been kicked around in Oakland before, but got pushed into use because of the pandemic. We have many fewer vehicles in New York City. Open streets. People want to walk. They want to go out and get some air. You want a less dense area. So pilot closing streets to cars, opening streets to pedestrians. We do have space in our streets and we should be thinking about them creatively right now. You know, it's, it's one thing to be really reactive and, and, and provide the space right now. That's important. But if you're not already thinking about how this relates to things after the pandemic, then you're really missing a huge opportunity. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. The last number of weeks have brought great change all over the world. For example, my house, where I'm recording this right now, is now my office and has also turned into a school with our daughter Avery's school closing recently. Hi, everyone! City life has drastically changed as well. Streets are quiet, stores are shut, vehicle traffic has nearly vanished, and buses and trains are almost empty. And pedestrians are veering onto the street as they try to remain a safe distance from each other. In some parts of the world, folks are on total lockdown and prohibited to be outdoors. Here in North America, we still have some freedoms to use parks, public spaces, and streets as long as a safe distance is kept. This is a challenge that cities are now faced with. How might we allow people to still enjoy the spaces of the city while being responsible and safe? Today, I wanted to talk to Mike Lydon, a previous podcast guest, who's been keeping a close watch on how some cities are proactively responding to COVID-19. I'm Mike Lydon, principal of Street Plans, and we are an urban planning design and research firm that works on projects across the country and the globe. Many cities are taking action, including Cambridge, Massachusetts, Charbique, Belgium, Ottawa, Ontario, Grenoble, France, London, UK, Vancouver, British Columbia, Denver, Colorado, Vienna, Austria, Bogota, Colombia, and here in our very own Calgary, Alberta. We talk about other cities in my conversation with Mike as well. Let's dive in. Obviously, we're in a time uh, you and I are communicating from our homes, uh, quarantine, lockdown, shelter in place, isolation, all those uh, terms for the same thing, uh, drastic change in our lives. Uh, but some cities are responding uh, quite proactively in terms of providing new kinds of spaces for people. So I just wanted to chat with you um, and maybe to start off, if you could share some of the actions that cities are taking uh, to open up space for people to get their their bodies moving safely um, during the COVID crisis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been really interesting to see uh, the response from cities of all sizes, you know, from Mexico city on down to Burlington, Vermont um, mm-hmm. cities are, are taking interesting actions, but really what we've seen is there's six kind of typical um, responses and all of them are intended to, you know, de-risk the public realm uh, I think first and foremost for people who are, you know, essential workers needing to get to and from work. Hmm. Um, and then secondary to that is those of us who would go crazy without getting exercise every day or two, um, which is a lot of people. And so, you know, this has been particularly tough, I think, with the timing because it's now spring and getting warmer and the leaves are on the trees here in New York and around the country. And you want to be outside more. You hmm. want to be having, you know, 
time at the cafe and coffee outside and meetings and walks and bike rides after a winter. And it's not, um, it's not really as, as easy as, as all mm-hmm. that. Um, but to facilitate some of that activity, um, we've seen cities completely close down streets uh, to vehicles. And a lot of that has been focused on two kind of areas. One is waterfronts and the other is parks. Hmm. So parks have, you know, large, larger parks tend to have roadways through them in North America. It's not always the case in, in other contexts, but in North America we have, you know, cars driving through our public spaces. And so most of those roads tend to be not essential for transportation functions. And so mm-hmm. they're really easy to close down. In fact, I think if, if anything emerges long-term out of all this, we might see a lot of those roads just stay closed or stay closed on weekends or you know, certain times of the day. It just seems to make sense. So that's really the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, cities that are doing the waterfront approach, some of that is also within parks or adjacent to parks. Um, you know, Minneapolis has closed down um, what was a little over 18 miles and is now 16 miles. Um, so it's at 26 or 7K um, of streets through their parkway system and then along the banks of the Mississippi River where there's public space. Hmm. So that's a pretty um, – that's a leading measure for sure in terms of North American cities in terms of the pure mileage. Okay. Um, yeah. and, you know, they have a great – parkway bike path you yeah. know system and what they're doing is they're keeping the bikes on the bike path and then telling pedestrians to walk stroll jog etc in the lanes or the entire street space in which they've taken back for movement uh, at safe distances so they've been a real leader there denver's done something very similar um and you know down from there you see partial closures so a lot of communities are looking at, okay, where are their pinch points, where are their bridges, where the sidewalks are very narrow, but serve, you know, really important transportation functions or provide access to, you know, parks and open space, mm-hmm. uh, where there are services, so whether there's grocery stores and pharmacies, and can we give people more space by removing parking lanes or removing travel lanes? Uh, that's kind of the, the partial model. Um, from there, we see cities undertaking shared streets, so thinking more about the residential context. And now that traffic volumes are historically low, um, there's just so much less demand for driving and using that space. And depending on your city, a lot of people have even left cities to you know shelter elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's certainly the case here in New York. Um, so cities are using just signage and cones, any sort of traffic barricade and closing off usually one of the kind of ingress lanes to a block um, so that you, you can drive out, but you, it's not hard to drive in or vice versa. Right. So that the volumes are really constrained to just local traffic for people who live on that street or say are delivering on that street. And, um, you know, emergency vehicles obviously can get through as, as needed. Um, so that's been a really interesting response. There's fewer cities that are doing that, but as this trend has, has persisted, it, you know, cities are pivoting towards that a bit more. And I think everyone was really surprised when last week Oakland, California announced that they were going to um, take the shared street approach on 74 miles streets right right i saw that when they kind of jumped to the the top of the list of <laughs> folks I who mean, were doing things just at a different scale and of course they're rolling that out kind of street by street you can't just do that you know overnight but um really to be commended and i think one thing to point to both in um oakland and then also in burlington vermont which is another city that's taken that tactic and um you know much smaller city but they've mm. closed you know, burlington's closed not closed but they've re- kind of calibrated a quarter of their street network in the whole oh, city. Wow. 
Um, that's a huge percentage. And yeah. Oakland is like 9%. So the, the kind of per capita impact of that is huge uh, in Burlington. But um, in any event, the, the interesting thing about both those initiatives is that if you map you know, the streets that they've decided to create these shared streets on, and then you look at those two cities' bike plans, uh, Oakland has a plan that is you know, very much like uh, say Portland or Berkeley or Seattle, where they're really trying to focus residential corridors into um, as shared spaces. Really, you can take a scooter, you can walk, you can cycle, you can cross the street, like really low speed and low volume environments. Um, and we actually worked on the Burlington Bike Master Plan and Pedestrian Master Plan uh, several years ago. And one of the big strategies there was to do something very similar. So take these low you know, volume and low speed residential contexts, constrain mm-hmm. them further, and make them more like greenways and spaces that people can, can yes, you can drive, but you're actually um, inviting people to use a street in a variety of different ways that's mm-hmm. not just driving. So in any event, both those cities looked at those plans and said, all right, here's the map. Here's the network. And that's pretty much what Oakland is doing right now. Oh, wow. and, okay. And what I, what I think every city, not every city, but most cities, what they're missing right now is taking that kind of approach and thinking through how, if you do have a plan that you know we're trying to achieve these kinds of streets, this is such an amazing time to take advantage of the moment and try them and get them embedded into daily life so people get used to it mm-hmm. and then start to make them more permanent. You know, after the pandemic recedes it's a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity for cities at that kind of scale mm-hmm. to have people used to low volume streets that might have not full access and you can park your car in your driveway you can drive on the block if you live there but we're not you know encouraging or allowing just anybody to, to drive all over the city so that's been really i think unique about oakland and um, slightly to a lesser degree burlington about the, the approach they're taking and i've been trying to promote that to as many people who will listen that, you know, it's, it's one thing to be really reactive and, and, and provide space right now. That's important. But if you're not already thinking about how this relates to things after the pandemic, then you're really missing a huge opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And I think like the, the exist the pre-existence of those plans, um, you know, probably no one ever thought that they would be deployed in this way, but that idea of, um, this, this term being planfully opportunistic. So you have these things ready and then you can, when you can pounce and move and then uh, on the sort of, you know, when we're out of the other side, I mean, there's, there's kind of well, probably three trains of, of conversation and thought there's just sort of like crisis mode right now. That's all we can bear and think of. Then there is, let's just get back to business as usual, as quickly as possible. But the longer this goes, whatever the hell normal is after this, who knows? Right. And so to have this, um, this test opportunity, um, for people to get used to something new because, New, it, the, the whole world might be very new and different <laughs> at the tail end of this, like the, the, the concepts of how people work, where they work, transportation modes that are, Im, Im, you know, impacted by all that. It's, you know, who, who knows? So to right. it really speaks to that idea of having, um, yeah, being proactive at any point. So you're ready for something that you never <laughs> expected, but also being uh, adaptable along the way. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the cities, too, that are used to um, citizens, you know, taking over streets, whether that's for block parties or special events or, you know, for example, in Burlington, we helped them develop a tactical urbanism demonstration project policy so that citizens could take on projects themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a muscle there that they're now flexing and a 
enough people who understand how and why streets would be repurposed this way that mm. they, you know, they did the heavy work earlier and now they're reaping reward in a time of crisis. And, you know, most cities don't, don't have that baked in. So, mm -hmm. um, truly a, a model, I think in terms of, you know, being accidentally prepared for something like this, but now hopefully moving forward, cities will have these plans ready and have an understanding of how to do this and how mm -hmm. to do it when, you know, staff is limited and not together. And, um, I think that's probably the biggest constraint and the most, um, acceptable and logical reason why cities are not doing more of this is because they just don't have the people and the capacity to do it. And it's particularly unique, I think, in America or North American cities where you know, European um, examples, you know, Asian examples, they're on total lockdown. And yeah, yeah. You know, my, um, uh, my father-in-law lives in Paris and what he's dealing with is you know, a lot more strict than what we are. So, mm -hmm. uh, well, that's good or bad. We will see in the, in the in the midterm, but for now, it means we can go out and get some exercise. And um, these measures do make sense in the North American context because we haven't been as restrictive as other uh, cities have. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, I was just a couple hours ago on a call with a colleague from Barcelona and just had passed the week five threshold of him and his wife and two small kids in their in their flats and trying to get get exercise however whenever you can and yeah chasing around small kids will get that to you but not to, <laughs> maybe helps. not to the degree you want <laughs> right it helps sure. um so i, I with with the, the changes that you've observed in mind you spoke a little bit about it um kind of from a, a being used to citizens being involved but the what is what are the the positive stories that you've seen um what does that tell us about leadership uh in our cities uh good good and bad i guess well, you know, not to harp on it, but I think, you know, whether it's Minneapolis or Oakland, um, you're seeing mayors really step up and meet the moment and, and doing so when they're under so much other stress and pressure. Sure. And there's, you know, this, this to a lot of people I can understand doesn't look like the most important way to be spending time or resources. But I think it's a fundamental quality of life issue mm -hmm. in communities in North America right now. And, um, you know, having a mayor like Libby Schaff in Oakland, who's been a leader on lots of other issues, um, but particularly strong, I think, in getting the, the Department of Transportation established there, getting that staffed with really bright people who she's basically empowered to do this. And, you know, mm. I love when mayors bring in people that are extremely qualified and skilled and give them the leash in which they can go and use their talents right. and, and lead from, from within um, the city and within different agencies. And, you know, that's not always the case with mayors in, in various city governments um, where it's, it's more ego driven and more about the mayor himself. And I think we we're we're suffering from that right now in New York City. Uh, we've got an extremely stubborn mayor who doesn't really get New York, I think. It doesn't really understand um, the strengths of the density and the people and the people power in the city that he could be leveraging and harnessing mm -hmm. right now. And his own people that are, you know, extremely gifted in turn inside of City Hall. They're just more constrained. Um so that's been that's been frustrating, but yeah, Mayor Libby Schaff, I think, Murrow um, uh, Weinberger in Burlington, um, Minneapolis. I mean, these are places that are making some pretty tough decisions and and, and leading the way, and so they they deserve credit, and mm -hmm. uh, I think they stand to benefit after this is done by some really positive changes to um, you know active transportation, quality of life, sustainable mobility, things like that. 
Yeah, for sure. Okay. And, and of the, of the action, you know, you, you described a, a range of actions. Is there anything that, that, um, there hasn't been enough of, or other ideas that folks you think maybe should think about in this time of, of change in our cities that you'd want to plant a seed if you could? <laughs> sure. I mean, I guess we only got through two of the six, but, um, <laughs> a couple of the other ones that are really interesting are the, you know, temporary bikeways are popping up. Um, mm. in fact, we did do a little bit of that in New York. There were two, key gaps in the bikeway network and the kind of inner core of the city that have been um, protected with orange traffic cones and barrels that the DOT established um, on major commuting routes on routes that are near hospitals. So that's second Avenue in the upper East side and through midtown. Um, and then um, there's a quarter through downtown Brooklyn. Uh, it's called Smith street. And that um, services both the Brooklyn and the Manhattan bridge in terms of cycling and you know rush hour on a typical day that could be 40 percent of traffic is people who are cycling Hmm. to and from the bridges and so you know this quarter um, had a gap that was not protected and so they filled those gaps um which i think was smart so berlin has maybe done the best on this um at the moment they've not only are uh creating new bike lanes on their streets by converting you know um, vehicular travel lanes but they are employing a method which I thought was brilliant in that they are pretty used to periodically having to repurpose lanes for, uh, for buses that fill gaps in the transit network. When the mm-hmm. transit ne- network is being, um, you know, uh, is under construction or being the repairs that are happening. So, you know, buses take the place of the train and then the buses run on the street and they create these dedicated bus lanes for that to simulate as best they can a uh, dedicated right away that you get with a train, right? right. So they're basically taking that playbook and turning that into a bike lane um, playbook. Hmm. And so they've done several miles around the city, filling some important gaps on major corridors. Um, they're also taking bike lanes that exist and, and widening them so that there's more space to ride side by side as you know, more and more people are taking bikes for transportation right now to stay off the buses and trains. So hmm. uh, that's interesting. And that same tactic, I think one city to really watch is Budapest. Um, Budapest basically just announced, look, there's no traffic in the city center. We maybe don't have a great bikeway network. Now's the time to build one. So they announced, I think it's three streets, um, which are primary corridors in the core of the city with a promise for more coming. They want to basically build out a whole temporary network and observe how it performs over the next several months. Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, not wasting a crisis and seeing that this is a, a lack in terms of the city's livability and you might as well put this stuff in now when there's no traffic and then let things adjust after the fact. It's certainly a lot less painful way to do it. So Budapest mm-hmm. will be interesting to watch how much they get accomplished and then what stays, you know, six months from now, six years from now. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because oftentimes it's the, it's the short term disruption that kills something. You can't conceive of two months of construction. So it just kills the long term benefit where the, that's, that's a really interesting approach that the disruption will be really minimal if everyone's, <laughs> everyone's staying home. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, everyone's saying right now in New York, like, why are we not making, you know, massive repairs to the transit system right now? There's no, <laughs> such a low demand yeah. to be on it. Um, you know, I think the, the, in the smallest, speaking of interventions, the smallest scale of what cities are doing is putting their pedestrian signals on recall, which is kind of a technical term for when you um, come to the intersection and you want to cross the street, when the cars get the green light, you'll also get the walk signal, which, you know, is probably the way it should be everywhere in the world. And in most cities, that is the case, these leading cities. But in so many North American cities, you have to press what's called that beg button. 
and um, otherwise the signal will not be given to you as a pedestrian. Mm-hmm. And you know, in New York City, um, almost everywhere, every single signal is on recall, so you never have to wait, and it's time, so you can walk blocks at a certain you know pace and never catch. Um, uh, a red light, which is really amazing. Uh, most cities don't have that. So yeah. uh, that's why the second most common intervention has been to put those signals on recall, uh, particularly in CBDs and downtown you know, areas and neighborhoods where there's more foot traffic. Um, mm-hmm. So there's been you know, almost a couple dozen cities who have done that, you know, scales from large, large to small. Um, and that's certainly something that I think that should be kept after this pandemic proceeds. Um, that's when that should have happened years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, but you know, who wants to press a button right now that you know a hundred other people press that day? This doesn't really feel comfortable. So it's an yeah. interesting tweak in the network that's happening. Yeah, for sure. And just, oh, just that was uh, two days ago. So uh, our get out of the house to avoid going totally squirrely. Uh, we've we've got a, lo- a book from a local historian, and so my ten year old and I go for a walk. We'll pick a place and go for a walk to it, learn about the history, and come back and every single time we've gone, we've crossed a street with a big button and she's just in the habit of hitting it and just sort of like, Nope, don't do that. We don't need to now, but right. it's also right. like we, and then we, then we got into the, the, why they exist, the whole history of, you know, giving cars priority over people and all that. So it sparked some it. pretty, pretty interesting it. conversations. <laughs> it's a teachable moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Daddy, why do we prioritize cars over people? <laughs> It's a good question. Yeah. Well, back to 1955. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay. And so, are, are there any? Uh, we've we've touched on a, on a few of them, but um, other long term impacts that you think the COVID crisis is going to have on how we? Uh, of course, this is emerging by the day of as we understand the crisis potential for future crises and all that. But how, how we think about and use our our city spaces. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of questions and dialogue about mm-hmm. that right now. As you know, um, I personally don't see the kind of worst case scenario coming to fruition uh, at this point in time. And, and by worst case, I mean that people don't want to live in cities anymore. And we're back to the 1960s, you know, 70s, and 80s, and people are fleeing really dramatically mm-hmm. from, from city cores. I don't think we'll quite get to that level. Of course, there'll be some of that, but I don't think there'll be a huge wave necessarily if we can get our cities, you know, to be more or less functional again in the next several months. Um, mm-hmm. This persists for, you know, six months to a year. I think that's that's going to be more of a fatal blow. But we're not we're not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the biggest losers in this right now, from what I can see, is going to be our transit systems. Um, yeah. You know, to some degree, um, transit systems around the country, you know, they're they're subsidized and and financed in, in a variety of ways, but a lot of them are pretty dependent on, on fair revenue and that revenue is, you know, been depleted by 80, 90% in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So recovering from that is extremely challenging with systems that we're already disinvested in. Right. And right. we know that firsthand in New York, we have an amazing subway system. It's truly remarkable, um, that it runs at all, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it needs a lot of work and attention upgrades and all of a sudden they're you know seeing, billions of dollars in shortfall and that's even after receiving some of the stimulus money already from the federal government so Mm. you know without another 10 billion they're going to be really keeping this thing together with duct tape and some chewing gum so um you know and and riders aren't going to return necessarily at the same rate at first and so that kind of prolonged long tail of pandemic is going to really impact um 
our transit system. People will be, you know, I think, honestly, will be walking, cycling, um, and, and taking Lyfts or Ubers as much as they can to avoid being in the subway to the degree they can afford it. And um, that's going to be problematic, I think, for the next many years. Uh, we'll be recovering from this. And, 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 you know, speaking locally in New York, we were just starting to get some of the final repairs done from the Sandy um, mm. crisis, which, you know, flooded our subway tunnels and caused the massive amounts of damage. And um, we were getting all these tunnels finally fully repaired and, um, and improving signals at the same time, speed trains, and really getting the system back on track. And then this happens. So it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. Any, any, uh, closing thoughts on how everyone's dealing with this and, and for any, any city, either city builders who have, have active roles or citizens, what they can do to, uh, to encourage their, their own leaders to, uh, make some changes. Yeah. I mean, I think just being sensitive to the reduced capacity of everybody <laughs> to, to manage any sort of crisis, whether that's a crisis at home with your toddlers running around and trying to get work done, or it's a crisis of your transit system falling apart or, you know, there's just not the same ability for people to work with the same efficiency. But that mm-hmm. being said, I think really focusing advocacy efforts or uh, from the city side, focusing your um, your response efforts on the places that need it the most. Um, I've been really disappointed that a lot of cities aren't taking this approach around hospitals. Um, right. You know, I don't know why more cities aren't doing that. It seems obvious. I mean, of course, emergency vehicles need to be have 100% eased access. And I would think that that would, you know, improving that access would, would come from limiting traffic from anybody else. Um, and we're not seeing that really anywhere. If there's, you know, hospitals in the vicinity of some of these, these closures or open streets, it, and I'm not so sure it's been 100% intentional. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, thinking about the areas of the cities where people are trying to get to those resources that are critical and make sure that the network of streets serves them and gets people there in a safe mm-hmm. manner. Um, and then I think for quality of life, you know, you know, beyond the you know, emergency responders and people who need those services, um, you know, thinking strategically about your neighborhoods and your parks and where those things are and find a way to deliver some benefit to people and some relief by giving them space. And, uh, you know, one way to do that, which I've seen a few citizens take on themselves, but has not been really proactively stood up by any municipalities is you know, basically providing a very low cost toolkit and permission for, for residents to go out into their residential streets of a certain criteria, right, uh, already relatively low-speed streets, and, and to manage them. And they could, those could be time-of-day closures. That could be 10 to 2. You can come out, and you can ride a scooter. You can yeah. have a conversation with a neighbor from 10 feet away. You know, you can do those sorts of things for a limited time. But, you know, here's the toolkit. Here's the sign. Here's the cone. If the cone falls over, you know, you need to pick it up and put it back in the street from 10 to 2. Like, whatever it is. Like, yeah. that's the really basic criteria. And um, I think there's a real potential for that that we're not seeing at the moment. And I know that more and more of my neighbors are getting uh, pretty restless and not having more space. So um, we do have space in our streets and we should be thinking about them creatively right now. Mm-hmm, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that's that's one of the things in our shop. We're just trying to keep figuring out how do we. Uh, uh, yeah opportunity for creativity and figuring out ways to help people and uh, lots of mental health uh, things that you know been reading lately just the the premise of helping helps yourself um and so like exactly. if you can yeah yeah exactly. for sure for sure okay well this has been uh, awesome and we'll get this uh, out into the world as quickly as we can covid19 will have a lasting impact on all aspects of society including how our cities are planned designed and used 
it's inspiring to see the creativity and collective action towards providing people with more public space. I'm hopeful that some of these changes we are seeing in the wake of COVID-19 will change our cities for the better over the long term. Now, if you'll excuse me, Avery and I are going to go for a walk along Memorial Drive, one of the roadways here in Calgary that's been closed to make more space for people. Bye! 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.